relief. <laughs> I thought instead of a pop quiz, let's, let's do a thought exercise. Thought experiments and thought exercises are fun, right? They help us to think things through. And if we think about things on our own, then we discuss it with one another. It helps open up our mind to the possibilities of different perspectives. So it's cold outside, right? It's cold. So before we kick off this thought experiment, let's have everybody stand up real quick. It's only going to take a second. Come on, everybody on their feet. I know we were just on our feet worshiping, but it's cold out. Let's get that blood pumping, all right? So shake those hands, wiggle those legs a little bit, take a deep breath in, reach for the sky, and let it out and down. Yeah, there you go. Get a good stretch, you know? Take a deep breath in. And as you let it out, take a seat. Now it's time to get comfortable. I'm going to ask that everybody would close their eyes and leave their eyes closed for the, this portion of the, of, the, of the sermon. It's an internal reflection. And we're concerned right now with our thoughts and how they align with God's thoughts. Ask yourself the question, when given the authority to choose, do we prefer to be an insider or an outsider? We're speaking specifically about community. Do we desire to be on the inside with a function and a purpose, or do we desire to be on the outside lacking function and purpose? What is it that makes someone an outsider? Is it the way that they speak? Do they have an accent? Maybe they were born with a speech impediment. Maybe they speak a different language, which creates a language barrier. These are all limiting factors on us as human beings. And because they're limiting factors, they have the potential to cause a divide. Could it be the clothes that people wear? Are they hand-me-downs? Just a little too big or a little too tight? Is it because what they wear is culturally different from the norm? Maybe it's because their providers could never afford name brand stuff. And they always had to settle for the off brand. Is it the color of their skin? Maybe it's all of the above and more. What is it that makes one an outsider? With our eyes closed... Let's ask ourselves, honestly, do we believe that we can put ourselves into the shoes of another and see through the eyes of another who lives their life on the outside looking in? In verse 19 of chapter 1 in the book of Ruth, as the ladies returned to Bethlehem and as they walked through the gate, the whole city was stirred because of them. And in the midst of the excitement, not one individual acknowledged Ruth's presence. In verse 21, Naomi claimed that Yahweh had brought her back empty. I wonder just how far Ruth was standing from Naomi when she made this claim. And I wonder how Ruth felt when she heard it. Had it not been for the narrator in verse 22, we, the audience, may have forgotten that Ruth was even there. She was right there, standing with Naomi. But seriously, who has the time to notice the outsider? With all of this data, we have to ask, what effect would this have on the life of Ruth? Father, we pray that as we come before your word this morning, your spirit would work in our hearts and minds to transform us and to change us so that we can image you in a way that actually reflects your light and your love and your will for the whole of humanity. Father, there are so many outsiders in the world who, like Ruth, feel like they lack purpose and function. But you are the God who gives life and gives purpose and assigns function. So we pray, Lord, that as we search the text, you would open our hearts and our minds to the reality that there are people 
who need to know you. And you have called us to introduce you to them. We thank you, Father, for the source of life that comes only from you. And we pray that we would honor you in our bodies, a holy, set-apart people, consecrated to build your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. So today's text comes to us from the book of Ruth, and we're in chapter 2 now. Yeah, we made it out of chapter 1. We're in chapter 2. Remember, we're reading from the NASB 1995 translation for this Bible study. And it's not my preference, but it's challenging me. The goal is to show up to church and be challenged to think. Sometimes when we read a different translation, it causes us to think. Now Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Please, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. Go to the next slide. So she departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, May the Lord be with you. And they said to him, May the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his servant, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? The servant in charge of the reapers replied, She is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. And she said, Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. Then she came and has remained from morning until now. She has been sitting in the house for a little while. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Listen carefully, my daughter. Do not go glean in another field. Furthermore, do not go on from this one, but stay here with my maids. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Indeed, I have commanded the servants not to touch you. When you are thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from what the servants draw. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Boaz replied to her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me, and how you left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your sight, my Lord. For you have comforted me and indeed have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. In the opening of Ruth chapter 2, we read that Old Testament scholar Alan Old points out, he's like, hey, modern students, you need to understand that verse 1 of chapter 2 does not function as the beginning of the story. It doesn't. It functions more like a hack or a cheat to those of us in the audience by providing us with the necessary background information that we need for Boaz. That way, when he arrives on the scene in verse 4, like we just read, we're not stuck thinking, wait a second, <laughs> who the heck is this guy? <laughs> so verse 1 functions as the prologue. See, this is where we meet Boaz, and we learn all that we need to know about him. Verse 2, Act 1, launches. It's literally the springboard into the scene. Boaz begins, or I'm sorry, Ruth begins the narrative by asking Naomi a question. And in verse 3, the narrator will shift the setting from Naomi's home in the city of Bethlehem out into the fields of, Beth out into the fields of Bethlehem. So there's a lot of stuff going on here in the opening three verses. And we set the scene so that we can understand what's taking place. So now that we understand what's taking place, can you guys read this next slide for me, please? Yeah. 
Okay, this is all the information that we need according to the narrator. Boaz. What a strange name. I don't know a single person named Boaz. Does anybody? One, two, three. Three people. Four. Four people that know someone named Boaz. It's all the same guy? <laughs> it could be. <laughs> because in the whole of the Hebrew Bible, no other individual bears this name. Only one man in the whole of the First Testament bears the name Boaz. Which means that for us, the definition remains obscure because we don't have much to go off of here. <laughs> but what we do know is made clear to us in verse 1. Boaz possesses everything that Ruth and Naomi need. He is a man of great wealth. Ah! Who is this guy? And what is he going to do? I'm sucked right in to the story. First, we should mention that we don't actually know how close Boaz was in relation to Elimelech. We don't. This is information that we lack because the narrator holds back these details. What we do know is that this is how Israel's social structure functioned. The Bet'av. Everybody say Bet'av. That is the father's house. So the target has a bullseye, and in the center of the target is the Bet'av. It's the father's house. This is Elimelech's home. Then you have the clan, right? Think back to week number two in our series where we described Ephrathites of Bethlehem and Judah as a way of identifying one's clan within the tribe of Judah. Different clans within the tribe. Bet'av, clan, tribe. Okay. <laughs> Who's Judah? <laughs> Great question. You could say, where's Judah? <laughs> That's another great question. Judah is the fourth son of Jacob who fathered one of the 12 tribes. When it comes to the land, Judah is a portion of Israel allotted to the 12 tribes. So it's a person and it's a portion of the land. These are all things that we need to know about the text when we approach it. So when it comes to the odd name and the Unique character in the story, Boaz, we should stick to what we know. He was a man of the tribe of Judah who lived in Bethlehem because that's what the narrator tells us. Second, the narrator describes Boaz as a man of great wealth. Everyone say, Gebor. Say, Chayel. Yeah, put some spit on it. Chayel. Right? Now put them together. Gebor Chayel. You guys are saying it better than I am. This is an honorable title that is given to men in the text, and then there is a feminine form of it, which is applied to Ruth and the woman in Proverbs 31, who may represent wisdom and may not even be an individual who ever lived. We just don't know. But we do know that this is a sought-after title in Israelite society, Gebor Chayel. As you can see, the English translators struggle <laughs> to put it into English. It's not a one-for-one -one translation. It's tough to take the Bible and make it say what it says in the English when we actually think about what it says in the Hebrew. So this is all super good information for us as modern students of the text. Daniel Block states that this expression, Gebor Chayel, is quite ambiguous and capable of a wide range of interpretations. And in this context, in the book of Ruth, it may simply mean a man of economic standing within the community. And this is understandable. Well, why is this understandable? Because Boaz owned fields. Fields, plural. He owned both barley and wheat fields. How do we know this? Because for those of us who have read the whole story, we see that Boaz invites Ruth to follow behind her maid, his maids, not only in the barley harvest, but also for the wheat harvest. And when you read Leviticus, you understand that Israelites can't sow two types of seeds in the same field. <laughs> one type of seed in one plot of field. 
So this teaches us that Boaz had a plurality of property. He's a man of great wealth. Not only that, he employs both males and females within Israelite society, and he employs them throughout both of the harvest seasons. <laughs> it may be safe to assume that a man of this standing would hold sway in his community. This is something we will see evidence of in chapter 4, when Boaz goes to the city gate and he calls the elders to witness the business transaction, which takes place between him and the near redeemer. So Boaz is a man of influence, and he's a man of wealth. Everything we just discussed <laughs> presents another foil within the narrative. Remember, a foil creates contrast. So we compare and we contrast things in the narrative as well as people in the narrative. This time, Boaz is contrasted with Naomi. Boaz is abundantly full, and Naomi, according to her own testimony, has returned to Israel empty. Maybe this Boaz character is everything that Naomi and Ruth are looking for. Just maybe Boaz is the guy. <laughs> and it's cause for pause when we think about the storyteller orating the story. I bet he couldn't help but smile when he introduces what we know as chapter 2 and he tells the audience about Boaz. So now that we have a deeper understanding, can you guys read this for me? It's like we can hear the director. Quiet on the set. Act one, take one. Action. Boom. The story comes to life. Ruth, for the very first time in the whole of the text, initiates conversation with Naomi. Please, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I may find favor. Ah, go, my daughter. Go. You have my blessing. You have my approval. Go work to get food for the two of us. This is how we should read the text. It's coming to life. It's jumping off the pages. It's tickling our ear. It's stirring our hearts. It's causing butterflies in our stomach. What's going to happen? <laughs> and it's here that we discover that time is of the essence, something Ruth must already understand. In verse 2, we see her taking initiative. The barley harvest is in full swing. Everybody's out working. The famine's over. And this woman understood that her and her mother-in-law needed food to survive. With the need for food, Ruth, the childless, destitute Moabite, decides that she will go, she will face down the heat, and she will endure the back-breaking job of gathering grain left behind by those working in the fields. Now, it's true. It's true that Mosaic legislation makes provision for the less fortunate. Just go to the next slide, write these verses down, and go read these later this week. In Leviticus and in Deuteronomy, you will see that God, through the Mosaic legislation, makes provision for the less fortunate. But we have to ask ourselves, is Ruth even aware of this provision? We don't know because when she was married to Malon, she lived in Moab. <laughs> so why would, Mo, why would Malon tell Ruth about the laws of the land back in Israel and how they make provision for the foreigner? They don't live there. So we don't know if Malon communicated that to Ruth. And we don't know how long Naomi and Ruth have been back in Bethlehem. So we don't know if Naomi's even told Ruth about the provision in the Mosaic legislation, which would allow for them to have access to food. So this causes us to question what's going on here in the text. And check this out. This is even cooler. In the instruction of Amenemope, this is an ancient Egyptian text. This predates the Bible. <laughs> 
Do not expose a widow if you've caught her in the fields, nor, give, nor fail to give way if she is accused. Do not turn a stranger away from your oil jar, that, he may be, that it may be made double for you and your family. God loves him who cares for the poor more than him who respects the wealthy. This is an Egyptian text. Interesting, isn't it? So from Egypt to Israel, this seems to be common knowledge. Boom! It's not like Israel's law is that special, is it? Hmm. Let's think. Let's think about it. Now some of us might be going, Matt, why do you have to do this? Why do you have to talk about the Bible like this? <laughs> why do you have to always mention extra-biblical texts from the ancient Near East that exist outside of the Bible? Can't we just read Leviticus and Deuteronomy and call it a day? I would say no. And let me give you two reasons why we can't do that. A, it spotlights the reality that Mosaic legislation is not the only law code in the ancient Near East that makes provision for the less fortunate. It's not. And you're going to run into someone who knows that, and they're going to be like, you think Israelite law is special. What about this? This existed before it. <gasps> now I'm on my heels. Well, get off of them and stand on firmly on your feet and say, why is that a problem? You don't think God is capable of collecting the good things that already existed and predated Israel and implementing them into their culture? That is how God works. He's a relational God. B, it teaches us that work in the fields posed a threat specifically to women. Women who are widows. So when Naomi approves Ruth's desire to go work, both women understand there's risk involved. It's dangerous. But we need to eat, so I'm going to let you go. We can imagine that when the original audience heard this, all of the young voices in the crowd began to whisper, she's got to work in the field. Yahweh will protect her. Yahweh will protect her. Yahweh is her banner over her. Yahweh is her tower. He's her son. He's her shield. Don't worry about Ruth. She's going where it's dangerous. Everyone's holding their breath. Because they know what happens or what has the potential to happen in the field. Hubbard points out to us that verse 3 is very interesting. We read verse 3 coming off the heels of verse 2 and we might expect news of Ruth's next move. But instead we get an unexpected report of what appears to be a description of her entire day basically. She set out. She arrived and she gleaned. What? <laughs> And of the three, in my opinion, the arrival statement is the most odd, and here's why. Uh, not this slide. Go to the next slide, and then I think it's the next one. Is it on a delay today? Yeah, that's all right. Okay. She happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz. In the Hebrew, it reads, her chance chanced upon the allotted portion of the field belonging to Boaz. That doesn't make sense in the English, does it? Her chance chanced upon. <laughs> what? <laughs> Her chance chanced upon the allotted portion of the field belonging to Boaz? Yes, this is an odd statement. Is the text describing coincidence? It's a great question. Is the text talking about luck? Are we reading about this idea of luck in the Bible? <gasps> what would we do with something like that? Take a deep breath. <laughs> The short answer is no. But you have to be able to explain why the answer is no. You can't just take it for granted and say, oh, well, as Christians, we just don't believe in luck. <laughs> Tell me why. Tell me why we don't believe in luck and coincidence. Right? <laughs> Remember, last week we said context determines meaning. Everybody say, context determines meaning. I love it. You guys are great students. Now, 
Old Testament scholar Chisholm writes, Hey guys, don't forget that in chapter 1, Naomi prayed for Yahweh to reward faithful Ruth by providing her with another husband. You want the data? Chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. Naomi advocated at the feet of Yahweh that he would provide for both Ruth and Orpah. So as modern readers, we need to be able to identify A, that Naomi turned to Yahweh in hopes that he would provide for both Orpah and Ruth, and that by turning to him, B, Yahweh would require Naomi to put her trust in him to protect Ruth while she was hard at work out in the fields, which requires Naomi's approval of Ruth's request to glean. And this request involved risky business. C, it's this difficult decision which Naomi faced, which opened the door for Ruth to chance upon the field of Boaz. <laughs> As the book unfolds, we learn that the Lord answers this prayer through a set of providential twists and turns. But this is God answering Naomi's prayer. So God is responding to a human request. There's two places in the book of Ruth where the Lord sovereignly provides food over the famine, a son for Ruth. Everything else involves human will and decision. You can't get around it. The Bible couldn't be any clearer. It's not a paradox. You hear so many pastors say, this is a paradox. No, it's not. Let's just think a little bit. Let's read the Bible and let God speak. How about it? John Hamlin articulates this principle so beautifully when he writes the narrator's statement that Ruth happened to arrive in Boaz's field opens our understanding to the possibility that the hand of a loving God just may be present. It just may be present in the events of our lives. What does that do? It provides us with the opportunity to act according to God's will. Our last sermon series, we learned that we're supposed to walk in the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. Live in the Spirit and produce the what? The fruit of the Spirit. Yes! <laughs> Paul ain't making this stuff up. It's in the Old Testament. <laughs> I get pumped up when lights start turning on. But let's not take the scholar's word for it. Let's see what the Bible has to say. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. What do you have to do for God to give you the desires of your heart? It's not rocket scientists. It's not rocket science. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. The Lord gives grace and glory. But I thought he would not share his glory with another. <gasps> Is the psalmist wrong? No! The Lord chooses what he's going to do. And he has decided that he would give grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. What do you have to do for God to give you grace and glory? Delight yourself in the Lord. Walk uprightly. hey -oh. Is God sovereign? 100%. 100%. Are these people in the narrative making real choices? 100%. <laughs> what one person sees as a blessing, others view as good luck. It's all about perspective, yo. We all need some perspective. For the text-driven individual, faith converts luck into blessing and coincidence into providence. God is with us just as he was with Ruth, amen? amen. He's Emmanuel. I mean, I, should, I got goosebumps. God is with me. Is he with you? Yeah. Amen. How are we not excited this morning? I'm excited. Yeah. Woo. I get pumped up. <laughs> I'm with Dr. Heiser. I dare you to tell me the Bible's boring. I dare you. Just come on now. <laughs> Sit down and read, and you will get your mind blown. Can we read the next verse? Can you guys read this? 
Yeah. I don't know about you, but this is a pretty glorious way to grip our attention while simultaneously announcing that the boss has arrived. <laughs> That's not how we feel when the boss arrives. Oh, why is he here? Can't he just go home? Doesn't he have anything to do? <laughs> now behold. <laughs> Notice how the storyteller goes out of their way to highlight three things in this single verse. First, Boaz has left the comfort of his home in Bethlehem, and he's left it to spend time with his employees as they work in the fields. This is vital to our understanding. To share table with someone in the ancient Near East? Community, family, baby. Boaz is not above his employees. He's in the field sharing a meal with them. Most likely, he brought the food. Because he's the great man of wealth. Two, immediately upon arrival, Boaz is affiliated with Yahweh, the God of Israel. And three, as he greets his employees by Yahweh, they return his blessing with a benediction. The Lord bless you. <laughs> the man Boaz, according to the narrator, he would not disappoint. He modeled true covenant chesed. For those who were in charge of his hired workers, Boaz is the illustration of covenant faithfulness. Chesed. We've talked about this. Covenant faithfulness. And that's not its only meaning. It's got many meanings in the, Angli in the English language. But Boaz models that for his field foreman. By Boaz modeling that for his field foreman, the foreman now knows how to treat the workers. Everybody's got a positive work environment now because of Boaz. What a dude! <laughs> He's indeed a Gabor Hayel in the fullest sense of the term. <laughs> now, as we continue on with our study, we look at the portion that we're studying today and we say, okay, two conversations are going to happen. Two conversations to navigate. A conversation between Boaz and his foreman and a conversation between Boaz and Ruth. I can't do an outline of this letter because there's so many thoughts on how to outline this, this story. Is it a chiasm? Is it scene one, act one, act two, scene two, act one, act three, act three? Like, I just, I'm studying, I don't know how to outline this. So we're not outlining it, you know? Yeah. We're letting the story tell itself. And the, art, the, 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 the narrator does a very good job of doing that. Two conversations, Boaz and the foreman, Boaz and Ruth. Remember, our goal, we said, our goal is to fall in love with the characters. These are the ancestors of Christ. And if we can weep in our living rooms over a stupid movie on Netflix, we should be able to weep over the circumstances that our Messiah's family lived through. If we can't, we need to do some internal reflection. How do we care about fictional characters when we could bind ourselves and bond with the people who actually lived? Right? Grey's Anatomy, what? Watched every season with my wife, and she wept over and over and over, and I was like, what? <laughs> Babe, why are you crying? You know, it's not that sad. She's looking at me like, you too, fool. <laughs> Get in touch with the characters. We want to know what we can glean from them. Can you guys read this for me? In her series on the, it's titled The Epic of Eden, Professor Sandra Richter describes Boaz as a remarkably observant individual who upon his approach to the field looks out over his workers and has the capacity to identify the outsider. 
which means he knows all of his employees. <laughs> He's an exceptionally observant man who can look at the field and go, I don't know that one. And he doesn't just go, well, I don't care. <laughs> he investigates a remarkably observant individual. Individual. Do we have the capacity to notice the outsider? That's a good question. I don't know how good I am at that. And I would, I would argue that I'm, I'm not as exceptional as Boaz. But finally, if you're Ruth, somebody other than the narrator and Naomi takes notice of you. She's probably like, praise God. <laughs> somebody finally noticed me. You ever been in that position? Now, if anything spotlights a difference in the culture, it's this question. Whose young woman is this? Wow. <laughs> Nobody likes this one. <laughs> it's an interesting way to phrase the question. But Ruth is not just an outsider in Israel. She's a woman who lives in a society which describes all females as the wife of, the daughter of, and the sister of. Elimelech, Malon, and Kilion were dead. Ruth had left the land of Moab where her father lived. Culturally, she may have felt like her very existence was being wiped from the pages of history. Everybody remember Marty McFly disappearing in the picture? <laughs> Imagine if she was within earshot of Boaz when he asked the question, whose young woman is this? If she heard this, I wonder if she thought, whose? I'm no one's. Nobody's hired worker. I'm no one's wife. I'm not a mother. And I'm no longer a daughter or a sister, I suppose. That makes me a nobody. First, Naomi's comment at the city gate, God has brought me back empty, and now this? My heart is breaking for this lonely Moabite woman. Come on, Matt. I just fell into the trap myself. I didn't even use her name. Well, why should I use her name? Nobody else in the text seems to be. Nobody cares, you know. But the Israelite woman has a name. But the foreigner doesn't have a name. You got preachers on the mainstream platform while we learn to deal with CRT saying the Bible doesn't deal with race. I would beg to differ. It's not like the author's giving the approval, but he's talking about what's actually going on in Israel. Come on, church! Wake up and stop trying to polish the turd. We're turds. He's not. We need him. We need the polishing. He's changing us. <laughs> it's okay to admit that this kind of stuff was happening in Israel. And guess what? It's happening today. Wake up, baby. Wake up, church. Come on. Let's not get sucked into this. Not my God. Not my holy book. Give me a break. How are we supposed to identify? No, the Bible's not about you, man. I know it's about God. I'm aware of that. Thank you very much. Not trying to find myself in there, but I am trying to figure out what they thought based on what they experienced so that I can figure out how it applies to me. Thank you very much. It's called hermeneutics, bro. Good Lord. Ah. <sighs> She's just a young, nameless foreigner who's returned from Moab with Naomi. <laughs> now, I wish we had enough time to go down the rabbit hole. Verse 7 is very confusing. But if I did that, half of you would end up falling asleep. And we're already going to run late today. So what's the point of mentioning this? It's the breadcrumb for the Bible nerd. Go do some research on verse 7 if you're a Bible nerd. If you end up doing any reading, let me know what you think because Bariah and I would like to talk to you about it because we're talking about how the German translation is different than the English translation and how the Hebrew is different from both of them. So let's talk about it if you're into it. Meanwhile, back on planet Earth, if there's anything that verse 7 reinforces, it's the fact that Ruth was willing to take the initiative and work hard, something we've already been made aware of thanks to verse 2. I'm assuming we've all heard this. Ask, and it will be given to you. 
Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Can we go two slides down, or is it not talking uh, to it? I think we got the next, uh, maybe I, go ahead and back it up. I'm, I'm off on my numbers because I messed up the PowerPoint slide this morning. <laughs> so we've all heard the words of Jesus, right? We're quoting the master now. Ruth not only knew, she didn't know the words of Jesus, but she knew and she understood her place in society. And she was actually okay with it. Can we get on board with the fact that Ruth was okay with her place in society? Instead of arguing that she should have had it better, let's acknowledge that she was perfectly fine with where she was at. And then let's ask ourselves, are we perfectly fine with where we're at? You're not in the Bible, Ruth is, but she's teaching you something, just like she's teaching me something. She refused to let pride get in the way of providing for the ones that she loved most. Sometimes I wonder if it's women like Ruth who set the backdrop for men like Paul when they write things like, we urge you to rebuke or admonish the lazy. Those who won't care for their relatives, especially in their own households, have denied the true faith. And my mother's favorite, Matt, if you don't work... (laughs) You don't eat. (laughs) I heard that my whole life. And now I hear my mom, who's a grandmother, telling the grandchildren the same thing. Was it Ruth who set the backdrop for the apostle when he wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit? Quite possibly. Ruth was resourceful and hardworking. And she was a woman. One who was willing to risk her own well-being for the sake of her mother-in-law, Naomi. The concept of covenant faithfulness, chesed, is abundantly clear on every page of the story. It's so beautiful. And while we're on the topic of covenant faithfulness, can you guys read this for me, please? It's our responsibility. Hear me, it's our responsibility to make sure that we don't misread this. Context determines meaning. Specifically, we can't misread the tone and tenor of Boaz's words to Ruth. It would be a huge misstep to anachronistically read this through a modern Western cultural lens. Well, how would we do that? Well, we could focus our attention only on the double directives, do not go. And if we did that, we may be tempted to think like, slow your roll, big dog. You just barely met the girl, big dog. Back up, bro. How about you dial it back and let her decide what's going to be best for her? By the way, she was here working earlier than you. But that would be a huge misstep to read the text that way. We don't want to do that. We don't want to make Boaz into a bad guy because we don't like the culture that the text of Scripture was authored in. There's no reason to do that. If we choose to do that, we totally read past the part where Boaz says, Listen carefully, my daughter. (laughs) Now, I could have sworn that we've heard this phrase before. And we have four times already. And we're going to hear it a bunch more. Maybe this is a sign that Boaz is probably a contemporary or near contemporary, of Naomi, because Naomi has already called Ruth my daughter, or Ruth and Orpah my daughters, four different times. It's a term of endearment in the Hebrew language. It's like when Boaz says this, he's saying, haven't you, I'm sorry, it's like he's saying, uh, I'm I'm skipping ahead, Let let me slow my roll, I'm getting excited here. We don't want to focus on do not go until we actually read it through the lens of listen carefully, my daughter. It's a double directive, just like Naomi had a double directive in her directions, go and return, and then return and go. The statement should most likely be read, listen carefully, my daughters. Why would we say that? Well, Hubbard points out in the Hebrew 
that this is phrased like a question, not a statement. And if we read it as a question, please listen carefully, my daughter, then it changes the whole context of what we read in English. Haven't you heard, my daughter? Immediately, Ruth would be like, that's what Naomi calls me, and I'm not her biological daughter. That's what she called Orpah, and Orpah was not her biological daughter. In ancient Israel, it's a way of saying, hey, come here. I need you to focus on what it is that I'm about to say because it's for your own good. Any parents in the house ever talk to their kids like that? Yeah. Okay, we can identify, right? And in verse 9a, Boaz, he escalates his language. And it's on us to recognize that there's an escalation in the language. But he's escalating his language, like we just said, from a foundation of love. We haven't even mentioned the fact that, unlike the, for, unlike the foreman of the field, Boaz, he decides, I'm going to use Ruth's name. And he does. He doesn't call her the Moabite. He doesn't call her the foreigner. He doesn't call her the wife of. He calls her Ruth. No, the Moabitess. You see that? Everybody else seems to call her Ruth the Moabitess. But Boaz said to Ruth, called her by her name. Boaz is a type of man who goes beyond the letter of the law. He grants Ruth permission to stay close to his hired female workers. This could be interpreted as an act of grace that may allow her to gather more grain than the average individual gleaning, and this would be possible because she would be closer to those doing the work, not further away. Anybody ever worked a job where you had to pull security, keep people at a safe distance, and then let them get what they needed? Maybe that's what's going on here in the field. Maybe that's how it functioned. That's not it, though. Boaz ain't done. He tells Ruth, when you get thirsty, you should drink from the water that my servants draw. Now, since it's his servants drawing the water, technically doing the work, by proxy, it's his water. That's how it works then. Is this Boaz making an attempt to flirt with Ruth in the public eye? I mean, it's a legitimate question. Wisdom literature dictates that a man should drink water from his own cistern. And all the husbands just said, I know exactly what that means, baby. I want to drink the water that God has given me from my cistern. Don't spill it on the ground, it says. Don't share it with everyone. You get the double entendre? <laughs> Schwab argues that it actually is a double entendre. I just happen to agree with him. Honestly, I don't think we're reaching here. At this point in the narrative, it's safe to say that Ruth has no idea who Boaz is. However, we're about to find out that he knows all about her. Oh, Boaz knows all about Ruth. So maybe the old man is just making an attempt to spit some game, bro. <laughs> Don't hate on him. He's single. Old boy wants to get married, which means he wants to bed down his wife and consummate. Anybody feel like that? <laughs> Y'all are scared. God made sex, and it's good within the covenant of marriage. Every day. Every day. Liar. Liar. <laughs> there you go. But honest. Honesty. 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 That's how you know Boaz was feeling the same way. Check this out. Let's reel it back in. It's all right. It's all right. It's all right. We're dealing with the text here. We don't have to wonder if we're reaching. Context determines meaning. And this is something that the scholars have picked up on. So we're in good company, if we think that. Now, we're about to find out that Boaz knows all about Ruth. But I want to say two more things about verse 9. First, this statement, I have commanded the servants not to touch you. Put this one in your backpack, all right? Because this is the earliest form of an anti-sexual assault memorandum ever recorded by an employer on the behalf of his employees. There is no other document in the ancient Near East that exists that we know of that predates the book of Ruth that 
argues for anti-sexual assault on the behalf of the employee, straight from the mouth of the employer. Take that one. People who don't think the Bible is an advocate for both genders. <laughs> Context determines meaning. Oh, and in the oral culture, the spoken word carries more weight than the written word. <laughs> don't forget that either. Second, everything that Boaz is communicating here teaches us that he is a man who's willing to exceed minimum standard requirements. Any men in the house who willingly pursue exceeding minimum standard requirements put on them? Boaz is a man who goes beyond cultural and religious traditions. Look, let me encourage you if you have time this week. Open up Genesis. Read the narrative where Abraham sends his house servant to find Isaac a wife. Ask yourself, who's drawing the water? Then read Moses' life. But before you read Moses' life, go ahead and read about uh, Jacob fleeing from Esau. Ask yourself, who's drawing the water? Then read about Moses and Jethro's daughter and ask yourself, who's drawing the water? In all three cases, these exceptional men supersede the cultural norm, which requires the women to draw the water, and they draw the water. Just saying, we could stand to learn a thing or two from Boaz. Oh, and he goes beyond the minimum standard requirements in the Mosaic legislation as well, as we discussed, as he provides for Ruth. So he sees the law, and he's like, I see the law, but the law is the minimum standard in some areas, just like punishments represent maximum standards in other areas. I will exceed the minimum standard, and I will give Ruth a great provision. Why? Maybe because he understands the provision that Yahweh has given him. Remember, he visited Israel, and he brought food to the fields. Up to this point, if anyone's thinking that we're taking a biased approach in an attempt to somehow protect Boaz, verse 10 literally makes that perspective impossible. It's Ruth who's in the scene, and she understands better than we do what Boaz is attempting to do. Look at her response. It's a voluntary response. Why? What have I done? Why would you look kindly on me? I'm a foreigner. What is it that made you show me grace? I've never talked to anybody like that. Anybody in the house make a regular habit of doing that? I didn't think so. It's a voluntary response grounded in a heart of gratefulness. When no one else would take notice of her, Boaz did. By falling on her face and by bowing to the ground, the destitute Moabite widow, by the way, who expected from the Israelite only contempt and indignity, displays her gratitude to Boaz through a physical expression which includes both humility and surprise. Ruth is literally blown away that he of all people would show her favor. I wonder if it clicked for her like it did for me when I was reading the story. God is answering another prayer. Please, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after the one in whose sight I may find favor. Sorry, Matt, that's not a prayer. She was talking to Naomi. Pump the brakes. How many know God is going to hold us responsible for every word we speak? Every word. God hears it all. Nothing gets past him. When Ruth made this statement back in verse 2, God was near, and his ear was tuned not to her words, but to the desire of her heart. He's answering another prayer. He's responding to the human request. What a good God. It's almost like he's personable, right? Call me crazy. <laughs> and because Ruth was a woman who walks worthy, Yahweh granted her request. This agrees with the psalmist. She was after grace, and the God of grace delivered. For Ruth, grace came in the form of a man named Boaz. We can only imagine that Boaz could hear the tone of surprise in Ruth's voice while her face was in the dirt. One scholar translates verse 11, I have in fact been told which signals to us that up to this point in time, Ruth had been known to Boaz by reputation, not by sight. This makes us wonder, did Boaz have his eye out for Ruth? 
He had already heard all about what she had done. This begs another question. How did he get the information? These are the kinds of questions we need to be asking. The only person who would have knowledge of these details is Naomi. Reflect back on what it is that we know about Naomi. She's got no problem walking up into Bethlehem and sharing all of her bitter experiences. And all of this news spreads throughout Bethlehem as it's carried on the voices of the ladies. However, James McNoan notes that in spite of her sorrow and sadness, Naomi must also have shared at some point the news about how helpful Ruth had been over the last decade. Ten years. It makes sense, doesn't it? Ruth's covenant faithfulness to Naomi expressed through acts of loyalty caused Boaz to pronounce a word of blessing over the outsider from the land of Moab. How beautiful is it when we actually try to understand that Boaz commits Ruth the Moabitess into the hands of Yahweh. The one who's trespassed from the assembly of the Lord, Boaz commits her into his hands. Exceptional character. It's true. We could be like, Boaz, why'd you do that? You could have just provided for her. You're a man of great wealth. Verse 1 taught us that. But Boaz does, instead of broadcasting his own capacity for generosity and his own ability to provide, what does he do? He commits her to Yahweh. And he asks Yahweh to provide for her. He asks Yahweh to represent her. He asks Yahweh to supply her every need. In the New Testament, the Apostle Peter writes, Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. How many of us know that God, in his perfect timing, would use Boaz to answer his own prayer? Here it is again, God responding to the prayers of the humans. It's all over the Bible. Boaz as the answer to the prayer would provide the necessary seed needed to perpetuate the name of the Hebrew family which was teetering on the brink of, exist- of, of, of existence. Are they going to fall into extinction? Or are they going to fall out? The wisdom literature in the Hebrew Bible teaches us whoever is generous to the poor lends to Yahweh. Chew on that one. Who can give to God? I think the, a lot of the teachers and preachers in, the, in America are getting this one wrong. Who lends to God that he should repay? Well, I bet Paul had the backdrop of the wisdom literature in mind when he said that. So don't frame it out of context. Frame it in context with the whole of the Bible. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to Yahweh. Go read 1 Samuel when Hannah says, I have lent Samuel to the Lord. Did God give her the baby before she asked for it? Nope. She asked, God gave. She gave back. This is what the the wisdom literature teaches us. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to Yahweh. And what does he do? He rewards him for his actions. Daniel Block writes that Ruth's act of kindness to Naomi had indebted both Naomi and Yahweh. Indebted Yahweh? What? And then Boaz just so happens to pray that Yahweh would repay her for her work? It sounds like the guy knows his text. I love the Bible. Boaz solidifies the reality that it was the God of Israel who alone could repay Ruth the Moabitess. By stating the same thing in two different ways, Boaz emphasizes that Ruth deserves, she deserves to be repaid. This is retribution theology. Blessing for obedience, cursing for disobedience. This is the Mosaic legislation, and it just so happens to be the covenant they're living in. Repetition is important. Notice the boldness of Boaz. We can learn this lesson. He approaches the throne of grace on behalf of another, not on his own behalf. Intercession. Boaz was confident to speak this way because he believed that Yahweh is the rewarder of all who take shelter under his wings. 
The grace which had come in the form of a man named Boaz was only the beginning. In chapter 4, the women of the city would bless Ruth by asking Yahweh to seat her alongside the matriarchs of the nation of Israel. What a pleasure. What a gift. What an act of grace. For Ruth, the blessing would climax in Obed. For the nation of Israel, the blessing would be found in David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed. But for us, on this side of the cross, the gift of life manifests in the Messiah, Jesus from Nazareth, who laid his life down so that we could live. Allegory, Boaz and Christ. Like Ruth, we should be fearless to ask for grace. I want favor, Lord. I want those who I interact with to show me favor, Lord. Be bold. Trusting that God will repay lives of covenant faithfulness. So don't just ask, but be obedient. Hand in hand, baby. Hand in hand. God repays the covenant faithful one. This is Hesed. God gives in ways that humans can't even think or imagine. Obed, David, Jesus. As we come to the close of today's study, we see in the life of Ruth how one should respond to such a great grace. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes. No longer why have I found favor in your eyes. Now she states that she has found favor in his eyes. Why, my Lord? For you have comforted me and indeed spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. Ruth responds with extraordinary gratitude and humility. Both Boaz and Ruth are extraordinary characters. They're not the standard person. They are extraordinary. Do you want to be extraordinary? I do. I want all of us to be extraordinary. Boaz the Gabor Hael had graciously condescended to encourage the foreign-born Moabite woman. And it was this act which could function, and it did function as a catalyst, allowing Ruth to outdo the humility expressed back in verse 10. When she falls on her face and asks, now she affirms. She escalates once again. She not only outdoes Naomi, she outdoes Boaz in her own humility. She bows her face to the ground. Did anyone see her stand up? I wonder if she's been down there the whole time. Weeping that somebody finally noticed her. Here, in 13, Ruth continues to willingly self-identify among the lowest of the low. I'm lower than your own hired servants. Like our Messiah, Ruth would continue to exemplify covenant faithfulness through acts of service to others. Just like Jesus, Ruth understood what it meant to travel a great distance in order to serve others. Despite the fact that she found favor in the eyes of Boaz, she would refuse to presume anything other than the life of a servant. We who put our faith in Christ, we have found favor in God's eyes. Do we claim to be anything more than a servant? Read the life of Ruth. The outsider who had only been referred to as the daughter the wife, the daughter-in-law, the foreigner, the one belonging to her father and her mother had now finally found shelter under the wings of Yahweh. As the audience is left weeping tears of joy, finally, finally Ruth gets to experience some grace. Praise God! we're left wondering if, like Yahweh, 
Will Boaz choose to spread his covering over Ruth? Father, we thank you for this Bible study this morning. Open our eyes, Lord, to see your character and your nature. Remove presuppositions. Tear down idols that we've created in your image. Show us who you are, God, first. And then show us in the text those who love you and how they actually live their lives so we can know what we should do and what we should not do. God, we want to know you. And the best way to do that is to read your word. To spend time with you. And to ask the Spirit to lead us into a deeper understanding of the one who height, depth, breadth, and width is immense and infinite. Father, we love you and we thank you for this story And we pray that you would continue to change us as we study it. In Jesus' name, amen.